Welcome to the Jumpstart Your Faith podcast channel, where you will receive the essential tools to take your faith to the next level. I am your host, Brian Ratliff, and I currently pastor Clearbrook Baptist Church in Roanoke, Virginia. Here is the latest message preached from one of our services. Grab your Bible, pen, notepad, and get ready to jumpstart your faith. Operation Akua was an attempt by five evangelical Christian missionaries from the United States to bring Christianity to the Akua or Winoe tribes of Ecuador living in the rainforest. These individuals were also known for being isolated and savages and extremely violent to any people who came into their territory, whether of their own kind or outsiders. With the intention of being the first Christians to evangelize the previously uncontacted Akua Indians, the missionaries began making regular flights over their settlements and villages in September of 1955, dropping gifts, which were received well. After several months of exchanging these gifts, on January the 3rd, 1956, all of their efforts came to an end. At a camp on Palm Beach, a sandbar along the Kuaray River, just a few kilometers away from the Akua Indian settlements. And on January the 8th, excuse me, not the 3rd, but on the 8th, all five of these missionaries, Jim Elliott, Nate Saint, Ed McCulley, Peter Fleming, and Roger Uderian were attacked and speared by a group of these Akua Indian warriors. The news of their deaths was broadcasted all around the world, and Life magazine covered the event with a photo essay. Interestingly enough, there in the 1950s, we look back into that portion of church history where the deaths of these five men galvanized or inspired extremely um, generous givers of missionary efforts in the United States, sparking an outpouring of funding for worldwide evangelization efforts. Their work is still frequently remembered in many publications, and in 2006 was the very subject of the film production called End of the Spear. And I remember going to the movie theater and watching that film for the very first time with my own eyes. And, 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 and at the end of that, I was full of tears to, to, to think about how these men would risk their entire lives to go to a tribe in the jungles of Ecuador to share the good news of Jesus Christ with them. And what moved me even more was to know that some of the relatives, a wife, named Elizabeth Elliot and a sister of Nate Saint, Rachel, would several years later return back to the same tribes to share the good news of Jesus Christ with them. We see that through their efforts, God miraculously and gloriously saved many in that tribe. And they threw away their, their, their violence and held to the peace found in Jesus Christ. Today, as we come to this passage of Scripture in Revelation chapter 2, we see that 
that the church of Smyrna has been labeled as the persecuted church. So today, the title of my sermon is three words, the persecuted church. And the key statement that I have, that if you were to walk away with any thought today, is this thought I want you to walk away with. Persecution weakens false faith and strengthens true faith. Persecution weakens false faith and strengthens true faith. Today, as we come to, to this scene lodged within Revelation chapter 2, I, I find it interesting that, that this church is, is known out of many of the other churches, like the church of Ephesus is known as, as a church that has left their first love. They were cold in love, but sound in doctrine. We see here this persecuted church here in Smyrna was a church that, that, was, that was well blessed of God and they were willing to endure the sufferings and hardships of being believers in Jesus Christ. And so today my question that I want to ask and answer for us is this, what can we learn from the church of Smyrna for the church of today? What can we learn as we look back to this ancient church and as we think about our church today? Now, just very briefly, I want to share with you some boring stats or thoughts about Smyrna. I find it interesting out of all the cities here, this is one of the few of this city, Smyrna, that is still alive and well. But it is called Izmir in modern day Turkey. And it was an important port of the west coast of Asia Minor with a well protected harbor and the natural terminal of a great inland trade route up to the Hermas River Valley. Now just keep in mind, this city, Smyrna, was a rival city of Ephesus, the, the city that we just read previously in chapter two. And keep in mind that, that on this trade route, on the Roman road, it was kind of like they would come to Ephesus and it was a big circle that they would travel. And as soon as they would get on this road, they would come to Ephesus and 35 miles away would be Smyrna. And Smyrna was the rival city of this city named Ephesus. And, and they had the proud tradition of that it was the birthplace of the great Greek poet Homer. Maybe you've been to Barnes and Noble and you've seen the Iliad and the Odyssey. Well, this was the individual who wrote those works and he lived in Smyrna. Smyrna was destroyed by the Lydians in 627 BC and for three centuries was little more than just a village. It was refounded in the middle of the 4th century BC and rapidly became the chief city of, of Asia. A common danger, though, was the aggression of Antiochus the Great of Syria. How he had united Rome and Smyrna at the end of the 3rd century BC. And in 26 AD, Smyrna appealed to this treaty when it petitioned Tiberius to allow the community to build a temple to his deity. Permission was granted and they built a large temple. In fact, the second Asian temple for the emperor and the first was built in Pergama. Smyrna was famous for their science, medicine, and the majesty of their buildings and also a hub for false worship of emperor worship and pagan gods. And as a result of their emphasis of worshiping the rulers of Rome and all these false gods, it resulted in those who believed the true God to be persecuted greatly. Persecution weakens false faith and strengthens true faith. Sometimes 
I want you to understand this, that sometimes God allows the church at large or the church at small in different regions to undergo persecution and to go through this time and period of pressure so that they can be tested and through the, 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 the instrument of persecution so that God can be most glorified and praised and so his word can be advanced and so that people can come to know Christ as Savior. Today, I want to share with you three thoughts today of what we can learn from this church. Look at verse number eight before we dive in here. Now, we're going to come back to verse number eight, but we see that, that the angel or this messenger of the church of Smyrna writes, and we see that these words were given to John by Jesus Christ himself. And there he's writing these words, and he says, these things say it the first and the last. So here we see that the eternal God is speaking to John while he's on this island of, of Patmos. And then he writes, and he says, which was dead and is alive. Let's pause here. When, or excuse me, how could the eternal God die? Think about that. The eternal God of the universe who has no beginning and has no ending, how could he die? Well, we see that this is obviously referring to Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, the second person of the triune God. And we see that when Jesus was clothed with humanity, yes, he was just as much as man as man as man as man and just as much as God as God. He was fully man, fully God, but at times in his life, he laid aside some of his divine attributes and qualities. I used to think that when Jesus was on this earth, he knew every language, all of them. I used to think that, that he, he could do anything and everything, but there were times when, when Jesus was limited in his humanity, but we see there was times when his divinity shone through him. That is when he raised those who were dead, when he healed those that were sick, and when he knew the thoughts of men, his divine attributes and qualities were being presented. But here we see that the reason why the Bible says that the, this eternal son of God came and died was for you and me. He was dead and is alive. Notice back in chapter one, verse number 18, Jesus speaking again says, I am he that lives and was dead and behold, I am alive forevermore. In other words, Jesus came and lived among us so he could sacrifice and atone the sins of this world so that our sins could be paid for and so that we could have eternal life in him. And we see that this is the one who is speaking to this church and we can glean from this church today. Look at verse number nine. The first thought I wanna share with you today about, about the persecuted church is this. When we are persecuted, remember Satan is the ultimate opposition. When we are persecuted, remember Satan is the ultimate opposition. Just as God can use you as an instrument to deliver his word to others and deliver the gospel to people who don't know it, I believe that Satan can also use human beings, men and women just like you and me and boys and girls perhaps times it too, that he can use them to accomplish his work on this earth. We read in the book of Ephesians how the Bible tells us that Satan is the prince of the power of the air. So he, in a sense, has, has dominion over certain aspects of this world. And he is trying to drag as many people to the lake of fire with him. But when we are persecuted, understand this, that Satan is the ultimate opposition. He is the one that utterly opposes the plans and oracles and words of God. And he hates God. And he hates his word. And he hates the people who believe that word. And so understand this, that there, will be there may come a time in our life here in America where we as a church family will be persecuted for our faith. Like those in Smyrna. Like those in Ecuador. 
Look at verse 9. The Bible says, I know thy works in tribulation and poverty. Let's pause right here. Here's a sub-thought that I want to share with you about this verse. This one's a little lengthy, but, but it goes in with this word work, and it goes in with this word tribulation, goes with this word poverty. Now, notice the word work. Say work with me. Work. This word work gives the idea of laboring and toiling out in the workforce. And so we see that the church of Smyrna, in the midst of all of their persecution and suffering, they were still outgoing and preaching God's word and, and living in a way that glorified God and advancing the truth of the gospel. And then it says their tribulation. Now say tribulation with me. Tribulation. Say it again, please. Tribulation. This gives the idea of, of, of pressure. That is, have you ever had pressure? You went to the gym maybe and you tried to lift some weights and, and you were being pressured to hold those up. Well, this word gives a similar idea that when we go through trials, there's times when we will be pressured in a way that God will use it to bring glory to himself. And then this word poverty, say poverty with me, poverty. This doesn't necessarily give the idea that they were, they were poor or that they were underneath the, the certain salary of their day. This term when you begin to study it deeper, it gives this idea that they were so poor that they were relying every single day for God to provide their needs. I think of the, the great preacher, missionary, orphanage starter, George Mueller, how they were coming to his orphanage and they would say, after going through the cupboards and having nothing left, they would say, Brother George, we literally have no food left. Let's pause and pray. That was his answer. And I'm sure in their minds, they were like, George, shouldn't we go out and try to, try to raise some funds and doing all these sorts of things? And he said, no, we're going to pray. And so he prayed and asked God to provide. And sure enough, later that day, there'll be a knock on the door. A bread truck would break down. A milk truck would break down. All these sorts of things would just happen and God would provide for them each day. So a similar instance here that this church in Smyrna, they were so poor that they didn't have the resources to go get their food and their, the, the provision. But we understand that what Jesus said back in Matthew when Jesus was alive, they knew about him. They heard his words. They, they, they heard his word after those the apostles would come and preach. And they, they knew that he said, seek ye first the kingdom of God and he would provide all the necessities of their life. And so he did. So here's the thought I want to share with you. Satan, it's a little lengthy, but listen carefully. Satan will attempt to distract you in your work, discourage you in your tribulation, and destroy you in your poverty. Did you catch that? He will attempt to distract us in our work. That is, here we see that these people, they were, they were, they were out preaching and, and toiling in the gospel work, and here they, they were going and laboring. And, and so if Satan can't stop us in our efforts of sharing the gospel, you know what he'll do? He'll try to distract us. And if he can't distract us, you know what he's going to do? He's going to send some afflictions our way. Trials. Maybe, maybe sometimes it'll be persecution. Maybe sometimes it'll be a falling out. Maybe a church split or whatever. And so if he can't distract us in our efforts and work, he's going to dis discourage us in our trials and tribulations. And if he can't distract us in our works, and if, he can't, and if he can't discourage us in our tribulation, understand this, that Jesus said, in this world, we are all going to have tribulation, but be of good cheer. He says, be of good courage. He says, don't be afraid. I have overcome the world. Praise God. If he can't discourage us and distract us, you know what he's going to do? He's going to try and attempt to destroy us 
and our poverty. I find it interesting here that there are certain aspects of the modern church that I really like and certain aspects that I just, I'm just not a fan of and I don't like. I find it interesting that there are so many televangelists and YouTube preachers and maybe even some, some preachers here in our, in our valley here that believe that if you're a Christian and you're not rich, you're not right with God. That if you're a Christian, you don't have a certain salary or if you're not getting a certain hourly wage, you're not right with God. Well, my question is simply this. Why would God allow this church in Smyrna to go through extreme poverty if being poor was a sin against God? We see some of the greatest preachers of yesterday were poor. John the Baptist, he was a, va- he was, he was a nomad. He didn't have a lot of money. You think he was rich? You think he was fine dining even at a place like Outback? No, no, ma'am. No, ma'am, he wasn't. His meat was locusts and wild honey. How would you like to eat grasshoppers for breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Doesn't that sound good? Absolutely not. I don't care how much honey you put on it. It's not going to taste good. He had camel's hair. Some even think that he just had one, one garment. Maybe he did. Jesus. He wasn't a CEO. Jesus wasn't even married. Jesus never even had sexual relations with another woman. Not even an impure thought crossed his mind. Jesus never owned a house. And he never had earthly children. Jesus went from place to place to place. Jesus, the son of God, was poor. Now, there's going to be times when Christians and churches are going to be full of wealth. And there's going to be times when Christians are, that is temporal wealth, are, are going to be absolutely dirt poor. No matter which one we are in, we can be used of God. We recently had a missionary from the Philippines come here, and he said all he needed to raise was $30,000 to build their church building. I thought to myself, man, we should just write him the check. I mean, could you imagine here in our culture, it would cost us two and a half million dollars to build a church building like this, maybe. But over there in the Philippines, just $30,000. It's interesting. If Satan can't distract you in your work or discourage you in your tribulation, he's gonna try to destroy you in your poverty. But understand this, notice, notice here. Notice, check it out now. I love this passage. It says that in the midst of their poverty, it says in parentheses, when I read the parentheses in the Bible, I think this is the Holy Spirit commentary. It says, but thou art rich. He says, but you are rich. He says, you are wealthy, not in the world's wealth, but in spiritual wealth. Check it out now. Your net worth doesn't equal your soul worth. God views you as the most valuable piece of merchandise that this world has ever seen. That's why he came and died on Calvary for our sins. But here, as I read this phrase here, but thou art rich, I think about this. Satan will attempt to misplace your prosperity. Satan will attempt to misplace your prosperity. Check it out now. This term rich here is used other times in in the English Bible. In Ephesians chapter two, we read about how the Bible says that God is rich in mercy. 
He is. God is so rich in mercy that he's willing to give to us something we don't deserve, and that's eternal life, because I deserve hell. I deserve eternal separation from God in the lake of fire, and so do you. All of us, every person apart from Jesus Christ that's walked this earth deserves that. But then check it out now. In, in 1 Timothy chapter 6, we see that Paul is writing to young Timothy, and he's, he's giving a charge, and he says, charge them that are rich in this world that they be not high-minded. There's a temptation that when we begin to stuff our pockets full of wealth, and every one of us here today are wealthy by the world's definition, that when we are full of money and wealth, the temptation is to trust in those riches. But the Bible says that Paul says, he elaborates, he says, don't be rich in wealth and money. Be rich in good works. And then, in James chapter 2, in verse 5, we read these words. It says, Has not God chosen the poor of this world rich in faith? Perhaps here we see that God is looking at this church, and even though they didn't have a lot of resources, that is, with the things of this world, he looks at them and he says that, hey, you are rich in mercy because I have been merciful to you and you're being merciful to those who are, who are persecuting you. You are, you are rich in good works because you're out laboring and toiling even in a, in a generation that hates you. And he says, you are rich in faith because even in the midst of your suffering, you're still looking to me. Today, my friends, Satan will try to misplace our prosperity and our integrity and our identity. But we understand that we are only prosperous through our relationship with Jesus Christ. And our inheritance is something far more than just a house or some, uh, a certain amount of income. Our inheritance is eternal life in Jesus Christ. But then check it out now. This verse goes on. It says, I know your works and tribulation and poverty, and you are rich, and I know the blasphemy. Say blasphemy with me. Blasphemy. Say it again, please. Blasphemy. It says, I know the blasphemy of them which say they are Jews and are not but are, check it out now, the synagogue of Satan. Here's the other thought. Satan will attempt to slander you in the name of blasphemy. Satan will attempt to slander you in the name of blasphemy. Understand this, that in Smyrna, this city was literally given over to idolatry. The emperors would, would rise to that position like a president. And in that position, they would be treated as if they were God incarnate. People would bow and worship them. They would have temples and statues and all those sorts made after them. But these Christians refused to bow and worship. And as a result of not giving in to the, to the struggles and uh, of all of these things, they would, be, they would begin to slander these Christians' names. They would, they would say, hey, they would say, you are practicing cannibalism. Because you're preaching and teaching that you have to eat the body and drink the blood of Christ. So they would falsely accuse them. They would say, not only are you cannibalists, but you are full of lust and immorality because you have these love feasts. They would say, you are home wreckers. Because once one of you and your, and your family become a Christian, you disown everybody in your family unless they get right with God. You're all home wreckers. They were slandering them. They would call them atheists. So extra, extra, read all about it. The Christians were the first atheists. So I am 
a Christian atheist. And all that simply means is, is they had all these many gods, thousands of them, and, and they refused to believe all of them, and so they would accuse them as being atheists, not believing any of the gods, because the Roman culture refused to believe that there was one God and his name being Jesus. Then they would accuse them of disloyalty because they would not call Jesus Lord and bow down to Caesar. When we are persecuted, remember Satan is the ultimate opposition. Satan is our enemy, not anybody else. Satan and the, the, the demons and demonic spirits, those are the ones who are our enemy, not our fellow believers, even, not even the people of this world. Verse 9 speaks about this idea that you're either on the side of Jesus Christ or you're on the side of Satan himself. So, so either here today, if you're listening to the sound of my voice, you are either a part of the house of God or the synagogue of Satan. And if you're part of the house of God, you have every reason to be thankful for because Jesus is your Savior and Lord. But if you're part of the synagogue of Satan, you have every need to bow your knee and confess that he is Lord before it's eternally too late. Listen, when we are persecuted, remember Satan is the ultimate opposition. But now let's look at verse 10. I want to share with you secondly today. When we are persecuted, secondly, remember perseverance is the ultimate option. When we are persecuted, remember perseverance is the ultimate option. Remember, persecution weakens false faith and strengthens true faith. And perseverance is the ultimate option. Look at verse 10. It says, fear none of those things which thou shalt suffer. Behold, the devil shall cast some of you into prison that you may be tried. Why should we persevere when the pressure is hard to handle and the heat of suffering is turned way up? Why should we persevere and endure? I'm glad you asked because I'm going to give you three reasons why. Persevere through suffering, first of all, because there is, there's no need to fear. Because Jesus is in control. Jesus is our Savior. He is our Lord. He is our rescuer. It says here, fear. Say fear with me. Fear. Say it again. Fear. One more time, please. Fear. It says fear none of those things which thou shalt suffer. Here we see that Paul uses the word fear. And it's mentioned many times in the word of God. Sometimes it means to frighten. Sometimes it means to be alarmed. Sometimes it means to be in awe. Sometimes it means to reverence. And sometimes it means to be afraid and to be exceedingly fearful. And here he's just simply meaning, hey, do not be afraid of the things which you shall suffer. And this term suffering, it just literally gives this idea of, of, of that you're gonna go through this period of great vexation. That you're going to be, that you're going to experience a pain at some point in your life. And he even begins to elaborate. Here we see a prophecy that Jesus Christ is giving John a prophecy about this church that they are going to undergo suffering and Satan's going to cast them into prison and there be tried. Talk about isolation, prison. There are three forms of, of, of punishment when you violated the Roman law. Number one, death. Number two, exile. And number three, you would pay back that fine. And we see here that these believers, they were going to undergo imprisonment as a result and then ultimately be tried. That is, they would go into prison. And listen, they didn't go into prison to stay for the rest of their life. They went to prison to one day die. That's how it worked in the Roman culture. 
And we see that Jesus says, do not fear. Perhaps he began verse number eight saying, hey, I was dead and now I'm alive because he knew that this church was gonna experience death through suffering and that Jesus already overcame that. So they had no need to fear because death is just a doorway that gets us into the glory place called heaven. Notice the Bible goes on to say that you may be tried. Sometimes they would be tried to be crucified Sometimes they would be tried. That is, they would go underneath great scrutiny and put to the test in, in kind of like a court system. And, and then sometimes they would be given to the Colosseum. there to fight till death and sometimes given to animals in the Colosseum there so that they would die. But then the Bible goes on to say this. You shall have tribulation 10 days. Here's a second reason why we should endure persecution. Persevere through suffering because there's no need to fear, of course. But secondly, because it will only last for a short while. It will only last for a short while. Here, there's so much debate among scholarship about what this means here, about 10 days. It is interesting that you'll, you'll read a commentary and it'll give a list of like several different options. And it will say, well, I do lean to it meaning 10 literal 24-hour days. <laughs> it's just kind of funny. But I want you to understand this, that whether this is referring to a long period of time or just 10 days, and I do believe it's referring to 10 literal days, understand this, this was a period of time when these believers would undergo tribulation because of their faith in Christ. Just a short period. But then check it out. Now, the last part of the verse, says this. This is the key part of the verse. It says, be faithful to death. Be faithful to death, and I will give thee a crown of life. Persevere through suffering because there's a reward at the end. In James chapter 1, verse 12, and here in Revelation chapter 2 and verse 10, we see the victor's crown. This is the crown that would be given to those who, who are triumphant in battle and victory, and they would win the race, and they would be given this crown. And we see here that Jesus is going to give this specific crown to all those who go through martyrdom. And just so we're all clear, to be a martyr, it, a Christian martyr, it means that you're going to be put to the stand and asked to recant and refuse to believe what you believe or die. That's what it means to be a Christian martyr. And here he says, be faithful to death, and I will give you a reward. Now, there's other crowns mentioned throughout Scripture in Thessalonians and Timothy and Corinthians and Peter and, and Revelation chapter 4. We're not going to dive into those today, but, but understand this, that, that there's reward awaiting for those who suffer and die for the cause of Christ. So those people in Ecuador back in the 50s, we see in the 1950s that they, when they, as soon as they entered into glory, they were received in the great arms of Jesus Christ. But now we come to verse 11. When we are persecuted, remember perseverance is the ultimate option. We have no other option but to endure. Just a comment here about enduring to death. The early church in the Smyrna time period, they were taught this about persecution and about martyrdom. They said this, don't seek it out. In other words, don't seek to try to become a martyr. But when martyrdom knocks on your door, do not run from it. And we see they did just that. In verse 11, we see the third and final thought for today about the lessons we can learn about persecution from this church in Smyrna. When we are persecuted, 
Remember, perseverance is the ultimate option, and Satan is the ultimate opposition. But now look at verse 11, and we're going to go back to verse 8. When we are persecuted, remember Jesus is the ultimate salvation. When we are persecuted, remember Jesus is the ultimate salvation. Let's, try, let's go back to verse 8. It says, These things saith the first and the last, which was dead and is alive. Here's what I want you to understand this. Jesus Christ is the eternal Son of God who died and rose again. Three aspects here about this sentence. If you do not believe that Jesus is eternal, that he, even though he was clothed with humanity, he existed prior to that and existed after he died. If you do not believe that, you do not believe in Orthodox Christianity. If you do not believe that Jesus was clothed with humanity and lived in this world and walked like we walked and ate like we ate and slept like we slept and died like we died, then you don't believe in Orthodox Christianity. And if you don't believe that Jesus rose again, that he, he was placed in a borrowed tomb and he rose victoriously from the grave, if you don't believe that, then my friends, you don't believe in Orthodox Christianity. Remember, remember what Paul said? He said, if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, he said, thou shalt be saved. Whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Listen, the gospel is open to all those who call out to him in salvation. Listen, Jesus died and, and, and the cross is calling. And remember, Peter said that God is not willing that any should perish, but all come to repentance. And as we change our whole mentality about who Jesus was, if you're here today and you believe that Jesus is the son of God, if you don't believe that Jesus died for your sins and the sins of the world and that he rose again. Listen, you need to believe that and accept that message before you slip off into eternity. Now verse number 11. It says, he that has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. This is a, this is a common theme in chapter 2 and chapter 3. In fact, every church receives this message. And here's the thought I want to share with you. Jesus speaks the word of truth to all who will listen. Will you hear his word today? Will you hearken to the message of the word of God? That there may come a time in your life when you endure persecution. And I'm not just talking about being cussed out or a door being slammed in your faith. I'm talking about coming to a point in your life where you have to choose life or death for the cause of Christ. And then the last phrase here. It says, he that overcomes shall not be heard of the second death. Overcome, it simply means victory. And I believe it's just a simple reference to all those who are in Christ. That is, we are overcomers because he overcame. And so here's the thought. Jesus offers victory over sin, death, and hell to all those who trust in him. Here is, is, is the, a time when the second death is mentioned. As I've shared before, one has described it like this. If you're born once, you'll die twice. But if you're born twice, you'll die once. Jesus said to Nicodemus that you must be born of the water and of the spirit. That means to be born physically and to be born spiritually. Except a man be born again, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. You can't be part of the household of faith unless you are born again. It does not mean you go back into your mother's womb and come out again. It means that Jesus Christ, or really the Holy Spirit, comes and, and indwells you and makes you a new creation. Revelation chapter 20 and chapter 21 speaks of the second death, how all those who don't know Christ will be thrown into the lake of fire. Here the Bible says that these believers were cast into prison. But understand this, that Satan and all those demonic spirits will one day be cast into the eternal prison called the lake of fire. And unfortunately, all those who don't know Christ will experience that as well. Today, as we come to a close, understand this. 
that Jesus is giving this entire apocalyptic message to John on the island of Patmos. And John takes it back, and there's a messenger, whether an actual angel or a pastor or a messenger, whatever. We see that, that this letter, these letters are going to be traveling on this Roman road and going to all these churches. All of them are going to hear the, entire, the entirety of this book. And throughout John's ministry, we see that he was discipled by the great Jesus Christ. But in the midst of John's ministry, he discipled a guy named Polycarp. And Polycarp was the pastor of Smyrna. And I want to read you an excerpt from an article from Christianity Today to take you back to the first century church and the second century church. Polycarp was a personal disciple of the Apostle John. As an old man, he was the bishop of the church at Smyrna in Asia Minor. Persecution against the Christians broke out there and believers were being fed to the wild beasts in the arena. The crowd began to call for the Christian's leader, Polycarp. So the authorities sent out a search party to bring him in. They tortured two slave boys to reveal where Polycarp was being hidden. It was a Friday afternoon. Polycarp was resting upstairs in a country home. They came in like a posse, fully armed as if they were arresting a dangerous criminal. Polycarp's friends wanted to sneak him out, but he refused, saying, God's will be done. In one of the most touching instances of Christian grace imaginable, Polycarp welcomed his captors as if they were friends, talked with them, and ordered that food and drink be served to them. Then Polycarp made one request, one hour to pray before they took him away. The officers overhearing his prayers, which went on for about two hours, began to have second thoughts. What were they doing arresting an old man like this? Despite the cries of the crowd, the Roman authorities saw the senselessness of making this aged man a martyr. So when Polycarp was brought into the arena, the proconsul pled with him, curse Christ and I will release you. Polycarp replied, 86 years have I served him. He had never done me wrong. How then can I blaspheme my king who has saved me? The proconsul reached for an acceptable way out. Then do this, old man. Just swear by the genius of the emperor, and that will be sufficient. The genius, by the way, was sort of like a spirit of the emperor. And to do this would be recognizing all the pagan gods and false religion of that day. So Polycarp replied, if you imagine for a moment that I would do that, then I think you pretend that you don't know who I am. Hear it plainly. I am a Christian. More entreaties, but Polycarp stood firm. And the proconsul threatened him with the wild beasts. And he said these words, bring them forth. I would change my mind if it meant going from the worst to the better but not to change from the right to the wrong. The proconsul's patience was gone. I will have you burned alive, they said. And throughout 
century after century, since approximately 155 AD. These words of Polycarp ring in the minds of church history, scholars, and theologians, and in our minds today. You threaten fire that burns for an hour and is over, but the judgment on the ungodly is forever. The fire was prepared. Polycarp lifted his eyes to heaven and prayed, Father, I bless you that you, have dre- that you have deemed me worthy of this day and hour, that I might take a portion of the martyrs in the cup of Christ. Among these, may I today be welcome before thy face as a rich and acceptable sacrifice. As the fire engulfed him, the believers noted that it smelled not so much like flesh burning but as a loaf of bread baking in the oven. He was finished off with a stab of a dagger. His followers gathered his remains like precious jewels and buried them on February 22nd, a day set aside to be remembered, that is to honor his death and sacrifice. The year was most likely 155 AD, and in the strange way known to the eyes of faith, It was as much a day of triumph as it was a day of tragedy. My friends, the time is coming where we will have to decide which hills we are going to die on. And today, my friends, the hill that I want to encourage you to die on is the hill of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the hill of faith in him and orthodox Christianity. But let me ask you this. Is your faith in Jesus Christ? Is your belief in the word of God and your acknowledgement of the gospel worth dying for? Hey guys, thanks so much for tuning in to the Jumpstart Your Faith podcast channel. As a token of my appreciation for you listening today, I would like to give you my free ebook devotional called Jumpstart Your Faith 30 Days to a Renewed Faith in Christ. Just go to www.pastorbrianratliff.com to download it. Please be sure to subscribe to this podcast channel to listen to more messages like today's. And if these messages have been helpful to you, please leave a review. If I could be of any help in your spiritual walk, please let me know by emailing me at pastorbrianratliff at yahoo.com. And one last thing, if you're in Roanoke, please consider joining us for one of our worship services at Clearbrook Baptist Church. Until next time, may God's blessings be upon you and have a great week.